Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold and perhaps more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine, we encourage you to visit lucy.co to try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional tobacco products. I'm David Rentelm, co-founder and CEO of Lucy, and I'm joined by my co-founder and COO, Sammy Hamdish. Hi, Sammy. Hi, David. So today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Zach Leary, who is a uh, voice that's very much on the forefront of psychedelic research and policy, and I'm going to let him introduce himself now. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is Zach Leary. I uh, host two podcasts, one called The Maps Podcast, another one called It's All Happening with Zach Leary and The Maps Podcast. Of course, it's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies podcast, of which I'm thrilled to be the host of and has uh, put me, I think, in the psychedelic conversation in spite of myself. <laughs> so here I am. I'm happy to be with you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. And uh, so maybe we could start with uh, learning a little bit about how you came to be involved with MAPS. Um, I imagine it at, uh, on some level, uh, as you said, you were pulled into it uh, that might have something to do with your last name as well. Zach, are you there? Oh, I, 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 sorry, guys. You guys are cutting out. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just saying. Okay. Yeah, I repeat. Yeah, go ahead. Would you like me to repeat that? Yeah, please. Sorry, you, you guys totally cut out. No worries. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so as I was saying, um, you mentioned that uh, you you got involved in in maps, uh, obviously as uh, host of this podcast, and uh, some of it was uh, in spite of yourself. And uh, we'd love to understand how you came to be involved in maps. And and I was also saying, uh, I imagine that uh, some of it had to do with with your last name. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I've known Rick um, Rick Doblin, the founder of Maps, for uh, quite some time. Uh, I mean, pretty much my, my whole life, you know, I remember the, the early days of maps when, uh, Rick set out on a very ambitious course to, um, change the face of psychedelic research and kind of reinvent it for, for the modern age. And I've always liked Rick and had a great admiration for him. You know, I think there was a time where Rick and, uh, you know, my, my dad, uh, Timothy had a friendship, but they also had, um, I should say maybe a healthy discourse of debate <laughs> where, you know, Rick and maps was kind of moving forward into the 21st century. And in order to do that, um, you know, there needed to be a little bit of kind of critical, um, I don't want to say debate, but perhaps critical conversation of of what uh, the landscape of 60s psychedelica looked like. And, 
I think that was misinterpreted as being uh, anti-Timothy Leary or, or, you know, having um, some kind of animosity towards uh, his personality and what he accomplished. But that, that really wasn't true. And as time went on, uh, you know, Rick and I stayed in touch. And as MAPS was, especially as the MDMA PTSD trials were, uh, really coming into maturity when it went from an idea to actually becoming a reality, uh, the idea for a podcast and f- for the uh, the need to extend MAP into the pop- podcast universe became apparent and they looked to me and uh, that seemed like the best way I could get involved. That's awesome. what happened. Okay, great. And then so for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with MAPS, could you maybe uh, sort of summarize the organization's uh, mission statement and, and the general activities? Yeah. So uh, MAPS, again, it's called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And the main objective of MAPS is to change the landscape of psychedelic research, uh, cannabis-related research, Um, in both legitimate legal settings and sciences, um, weaving into that, uh, you know, the cognitive liberty debate, which in turn can affect policy. So MAPS, their main objective, which still remains true to this day, is to find homes for legitimate, legalized psychedelic research um, that is applicable in uh, uh, not just a, a medical sense, but also a, you know a patient rights sense as well. So, um, you know, most famously within the last couple of years, MAPS is uh, is paving the way and currently in the phase three clinical trials for treating PTSD with MDMA therapy. And uh, phase three clinical trials means that's the last step within uh, the relationship with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to get MDMA legalized as a prescription medicine. So yeah, MAPS is, um, you know, on on one hand you can just, you could say MAPS is, uh, you know, the leading kind of brand name in psychedelic awareness, but it's a very uh, methodical and uh, kind of distinct route that they have taken and are undergoing to make that a reality, you know? Sure, absolutely. And so it sounds like uh, you referenced uh, sort of two main uh, ways that that MAPS uh, promotes psychedelic awareness. And one of those is through legitimate research and trying to find homes, as you said, for some of these substances to be used in medical settings to help people overcome certain uh, difficulties like PTSD. And and I want to delve into that more deeply, but first maybe let's start with uh, some of the ways that MAPS promotes awareness and helps uh, those uh, people who might be interested in psychedelics who aren't necessarily looking for uh, a medical uh, experience. And I I know that there are some Mm -hmm. examples like uh, volunteers at certain festivals like Burning Man, uh, where they yeah. guide people or help people who may have consumed uh, a substance that they're unfamiliar with and might need help sort of centering themselves. Is that, uh, 
is that an area that MAPS has been involved in for a long time? And am I correct in uh, my, my statements there? Yeah, you yeah, know, you are. And uh, that uh, offshoot project is called the Zendo Project, and it is psychedelic harm reduction, um, which what you were just referencing at the end. So setting up uh, kind of a base camp at festivals that uh, with very uh, experienced and highly trained guides to uh, offer a safe place for people who have ingested psychedelics if they are having uh, a challenging, you know, trip. Uh, I don't ever want to use the word bad trip. I just want to use a challenging trip uh, to where perhaps uh, it's going down a road that is um, becoming, um, you know, challenging for them to navigate within their own consciousness. They've created a safety zone that allows them to go there and, and talk through it in a safe and loving um, container that can reorient the participant into a, uh, you know, a, a new line of thinking while under the medicine. And it also offers uh, kind of basic things like, uh, you know, purity testing. If you get a certain uh, compound at a festival, you can go test the purity there and to see if, uh, you know, how pure and uh, the efficacy of it. Um, right. So, it, you know, the the thing with maps and how it affects awareness on uh, you know in just dealing with the general public for people who are you know necessarily a patient who don't uh, you know qualify for you know PTSD uh, MDMA studies or anything like that is it's um, it's like one informs the other you know so by maps uh, you know taking the road to um, go through a legitimate channel to go through a legitimate, uh, you know, narrative of making these medicines, um, as safe, uh, effective alternatives to psychiatric conditions that have been treated, you know, a different way for decades by doing it. in, in, in that way, what it does is it changes the conversation on a global level. Right. So, you know, the, one of the huge problems with, uh, uh, you know, the war on drugs and, you know, uh, recreational drug use has been just the conversation within the culture, right? Is that there's been a certain amount of hysteria around the use of certain plants and, and uh, other medicines that <clears throat> affect the human nervous system and, and change one's consciousness. There's been a hysteria around that that has made the conversation um, almost impossible to have on kind of a mainstream level. It's forced it to go underground. It's forced, uh, you know, psychedelic users or so-called psychonauts to live in the shadows, um, to not be able to come out of, the, you know, I guess the proverbial closet and say, hey, this medicine is, has um, changed my life for the better and, and here's why. Um, you know, the war on drugs was, was a very, very successful, um, you know, marketing campaign, a very, very successful spin at, uh, creating you know, a, a false narrative that just simply, simply wasn't true. So. And do you think the war on drugs created by slowly away at the time? The war on drugs created a hysteria, is that what you said? Yeah. So is, is that. Is that, uh, you think, the, the largest yeah. contributing factor? Yeah, yeah I, I think so. You know, the, the war on drugs created a polarization, you know, by, by demonizing the effectiveness 
of safe, responsible drug use. Um, of course, there's all the political ramifications and, uh, you know, class war warfare, what it's done to our inner cities and things like that. I mean, that's a whole other topic of getting into, getting into the political part of it. But as, as far as the cognitive liberty discussion, it became very difficult to have a safe, rational um, uh, kind of con- a, a conversation about safe and rational, uh, you know, legitimate, effective use of these compounds uh, for, for, you know, uh, as a regular part of holistic wellness and, and well-being. And so by chipping away at the establishment bit by bit, um, stone by stone, as it were, it's allowed the conversation to be changed. And I think that's what uh, MAPS has done very, very effectively. Yeah, so it sounds like the medicalization of, of uh, psychedelics definitely um, you know, challenges the argument that's made um, by proponents of the you know, war on drugs that there's no accepted medical use for these substances. Um, but how do you move from that to the acceptance of um, you know, psychedelic drugs for non-medical uses? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and the, the, the first part of that, I mean, not the, the medicalization of, uh, you know, certain of, of these compounds, uh, you know, that doesn't apply to most people out there. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no question about that, but what we have to remember is, uh, sacred plant medicines, uh, of, various, various kinds, you know, we could go down the whole list, but they've been a part of every indigenous culture as far back as we have recorded history. You know, it's been part of the the tribal rights and part of the campfire conversation of, you know, tribal living. And we are still in the throes of tribal living. It just doesn't really seem like that, you know, because of the way the industrial age and the post-agrarian age has morphed into the information age and it has, uh, you know, the modern world is not really recognizable as, as, a, as a tribal culture. But, you know, through the rise of the industrial age, you know, we've lost a connection to mysticism, you know, um, and psychedelics have always played a part of, you know, mystical phenomenon. And so, it, again, it's how one informs the other. The medicalization of it, uh, you know, th- that term to me is, can get a little um, heavy-handed because for some it implies sort of a mainstreaming of it, like the medicalization implies a mainstreaming of, of, the, of the use of the medicine of the, you know, the drug itself. And, and I don't necessarily see it that way. I see it as, uh, again, as a conversation changer. By medicalizing it uh, and medicalizing very specific applications for these drugs, it it goes in the face of what, you know, in America, you know, we schedule one drug saying that they have no accepted therapeutic or, you know, medical use at all. So if you medicalize it for a specific application and then another and another, then you can change the schedule classifications, which in turn changes the political dialogues, which in turn affects the the 
place within our culture, you know? Yeah, I mean, so you made a couple of references to sort of mysticism and, and the idea that, um, you know, substances, you know, psychoactive substances, um, one form or another, have been a part of human society for, you know, ages. Um, you know, typically, you know, my understanding is that they're used as um, as sort of an integral part of their, their um, you know, religion or mythology or sort of, you know, you know, spirituality or spiritual experiences. Um, and it seems like, you know, the most prevalent religions in, in Western society today don't really, you know, um, have an obvious place for the use of these substances. Is it something where you see that sort of the, the underpinnings of, of our, our, you know, religious structures would need to make room for that? Or is there another way that these, you know, um, these substances can be used in a way that's not necessarily tied to either, you know, religion or medicine. Oh, I think both. I, I think both. I, I don't think they're, you know, they're mutually exclusive. I, I think both, you know, I don't uh, mean to imply at all that in order to, uh, you know, take psychedelics successfully that you must have, um, you know, a spiritual experience that is that has some kind of traditional or kind of archaic aspect to it. If that uh, resonates with you, you know, if you um, you know resonate with Gnostic Christian use of psilocybin or the Native American Church and and peyote or ayahuascaros in Peru and doing it that way, that that's that's great. Um, but for those who are, you know, don't have any religious affiliation at all, the induction uh, of mysticism can mean whatever you want it to mean. You know, I think it's just about um, kind of creating the freedom to explore, you know, creating, allowing uh, an adult who has uh, a firm understanding of who they are and the ability to make choices for themselves to engage in that, uh, the mysticism of self-discovery and the mysticism of self-actualization, you know, uh, it, it can go either way. So in Maps's view of this sort of ideal world, and, and let's say that whatever Maps hopes to accomplish has been accomplished by 2030, does that mean that I could go down to a local corner store and purchase uh, some amount of a psychedelic substance like MDMA? <laughs> uh, well, I certainly can't, can't, can't speak for uh, map entirely on that, on that uh, issue, um, on that specific question, because I think uh, as you know, the decades unfold, things change before our very eyes much quicker uh, than we'd ever imagined or much differently than they imagined. I mean, we can certainly take the example of cannabis, you know, and, uh, uh, how rapidly that went from a, you know, a demonized, uh, you know, holy sacrament into becoming legal in however many states, if not recreational on a, on a medical level, uh, it happened pretty quickly. And, uh, I think the way that, uh, it happened, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself here, I'm not, I can't really speak for maps in my interpretation of this, but 
when something like cannabis is used by as many people as it is used by in the United States, the demonization of it and the illegality of it becomes a civil war. You know, when you have tens of millions of people who do it on a daily basis, it becomes a civil war. And that is something that is not sustainable, you know, when we saw it in prohibition of alcohol as well. So, you know, I mean, as of this moment, the, you know, the goal is not to be able to walk down to the corner drugstore and, and buy uh, MDMA off of, you know, off of the rack. It's, uh, the goal at the moment is to introduce MDMA as a psychiatric prescription that can be, uh, that is applicable for certain uh, ailments or, or conditions and have it be you know, pure, effective, under the care of, of a doctor, uh, and then kind of go through that door. Um, and sure, of course, I think one day, uh, you know, the utopian vision of it, sure, it, it would be to have it be, be legal for every, uh, you know, adult of sound mind and body, just like you would as we give the adults uh, in our country, uh, you know, the right to drive or fly a plane, you know, you have to take a license and, and you get authorized to do so. The same thing would be for psychedelic, uh, psychedelic compounds as well. Interesting. I like that license analogy. So you think that that's actually not my, I can't take credit for that. I'm, I am parroting, uh, Tim Leary here and he, he came up with that in the sixties. Um, I just, that's one of the few things of his that I do, parrot the driver's license model because they, uh, he first put that out in front of uh, America when he was testifying before Teddy Kennedy in 1965. Uh, and I do that intentionally because I still think it's, it's really valid, you know? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And that ties into a few things that I think maps does, which one that we mentioned the sort of safe space and the counselors or guides that are present in places where people might be likely to be ingesting, these substances. And I've also seen uh, some literature and uh, opinions that practitioners who will prescribe or uh, give out uh, doses of some of these psychedelic compounds might need to go through a training where they themselves experience that compound. How important do you think that is uh, for someone to uh, for a potential clinician to have personal experience with the substance if they're going to use it in their practice? Uh, I, I personally think it's very important, you know, uh, and, and because the, the way psychedelics work on the human nervous system and the heart, the mind, the body, and the soul, it's a very uh, holistic approach to treating uh, something that's going inside of you, whereas something like, you know, Lipitor <laughs> affecting cholesterol kind of targets one very specific part of, of the human condition and works on that. Uh, psychedelics don't, you know, they're kind of like this. It, it, it's going to take over everything inside of your mind, body, soul, spirit, your relationship to your own consciousness and kind of put it inside of the cosmic mirror and allow you to do deep healing work. So I think it's, it's very important for uh, the, the clinician, uh, whatever, the guide, the doctor, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, to, to have firsthand experience 
with it. So because the landscape, the psychedelic landscape is very, very unique. And uh, it sure helps to have a guide who understands what, you know, the person is going through, what they're seeing, what they're feeling and experiencing. You know, it's not something, uh, you know, and I get this all the time with uh, the, the work that I do. You know, I, I do some some guided journey work myself for working with people. And, uh, you know, these days with, uh, I guess, the sexiness of psychedelics and the Renaissance, you know, there's so much out there about uh, what psychedelics are like and uh, so many people are reading so many things, which is great, but you, you got to see it for yourself. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it has to be experienced. So, so that's, that's really interesting because you say that you do some, some guide work yourself. I mean, let's say just practically speaking, what kinds of things would a guide say to someone that they're helping so let's say that I have walked in off of uh, a music festival circuit or something and I've ingested a, a large amount of a substance, let's say psilocybin, and you are the person who is assigned to me. Uh, what, what kinds of things would, I, would, would you say or, or how, would that, how would that work? I would say that I'm scared because I uh, am perceiving a lot of the things that seem unusual, seem strange to me. And you would say something. Well, like, well, you're, but you're, you're, you're also putting, putting forth a model that is, uh, that, that is much, some might say is missing a step. Okay. Like, you know, that, that is under the context of harm reduction. If you're doing a psychedelic at a music festival, that means you did it without the intention of doing it with a guide. That sure. means you're doing it directly a recreational setting and, you know, to, Hey, look, you know, I grew up taking LSD at Grateful Dead concerts, you know? So, uh, in the eighties and nineties. So I, I can't say that, you know, when I first started doing psychedelics, I did it with, uh, you know, set and setting being, you know, completely perfect. And every, every time I, you know, the music and the community and, you know, the magic of the rest of that experience was part of it. But so if you're doing it in that context, that's more like harm reduction. Um, you know, but if you're doing it with a guide from, from the get go, that means you're working with somebody who's extremely experienced in this landscape and they are, you're putting your intention down on paper or audibly and really looking at things that you want to work on, that you want to chip away at that, uh, or you want to grow. Um, but to, to answer your, your question, um, if somebody came into me, who came to me at a music festival and they were freaking out and they felt scared, I would, the first place I, I, I would start is to make sure that they understood that they're safe and loved in that particular moment, that uh, they are, their physical environment is safe, that the effects of what they are feeling are temporary, it will wear off and that they're loved and we're all in this together and don't worry, you're going to be okay on the other side and getting that, uh, that message across is usually where I start. Interesting. So it, it sounds uh, to some extent like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs where if someone comes off of the street or, or off of a music festival circuit, then what they really need is to have that base need established of, of safety. But 
you're saying that ideally someone would come and plan something out with a guide and they would be able to work through problems and, and the goal would be you know, basically to reach the opposite uh, part of that spectrum to, to achieve self-actualization. And so when exactly. you say um, someone would plan this out, they would come to you and they would have some sort of intention, some sort of part of their life or something that they would want to discuss, uh, that would be, could you give us some examples of what some things would be and then what would the, how would it work? Would you both consume the substance or would it just be the person who's uh, needs to work through a particular intention? Yeah. When I do one-on-one sessions, we both don't take the substance. Uh, and that's uh, very intentional. It's, it's necessary that I have, uh, you know, some, some distance from it and I can remain in the space of loving objectivity. You know, I mean, I have done, you know, I don't know how many psychedelic journeys, but, you know, a couple hundred for sure. Uh, so I understand the landscape very well. So if somebody comes to me saying, uh, I'm trying to think of some recent examples, they have some uh, deep-seated PTSD or uh, trauma from uh, their profession. Um, something that comes to mind is uh, working with somebody who was present in war-torn strife areas around the world, um, documenting, you know, wars in Libya and Iraq and, and the Congo and, and seeing horrific things, uh, almost dying, seeing their friends getting blown up and, uh, things like that. And, uh, you know, by being verbal about that and setting the intention of trying to seek healing from that, it allows, um, the neuroscience of the brain to rewire itself to come from a different place, to come from a place of love, healing, and bearing witness on the situation, as opposed to leading from trauma and disaster and, and, and heartache, you know? So, uh, you know, there are so many examples of, of why people, uh, come to psychedelic guides, you know, sure. Some people come, just to engage in a mystical experience. And they don't really know what they're looking for, but they're looking for something. Um, so it really just starts about with being honest about being, you know, vulnerable and you know, how much you're going to get out of it is how much you're going to put into it. Really. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure this kind of varies on a case by case basis, but you know, when you're talking about um, a therapy session um, to address, um, you know, underlying PTSD, um, you know, without a substance like MDMA versus, you know, where the patient uses a substance like MDMA, you know, how kind of qualitatively do those sessions differ? How do they, I'm sorry, what would that differ from what? From, from, from that, when that same patient, um, you know, doesn't use a substance like MDMA, does it, you know, does it, does the substance make them sort of more receptive to, you know, kind of exploring the, the traumatic experience or, or, um, you know, just having a more positive outlook on, um, their sort of prospects for the future. How how does that, how do those sessions typically, uh, differ on average? Uh, considerably. I mean, it is, uh, it's pretty subjective for sure. Specifically around MDMA though. Um, 
uh, well, I, w- I, would sh- I would say to answer the first part again, they differ considerably depending on the compound. With with MDMA, uh, there's almost, I don't want to say 100%, but a vast majority of MDMA having very high success rates in creating um, an empathetic, empathetic heart opening, you know, um, it's, it's almost fail safe. You know, MDMA has an amazing quality, an amazing key that is embedded within it that unlocks the heart, that allows um, the ability to kind of look at the world and yourself and your connection, your self-connection to the rest of the world and humanity through the eyes of love and togetherness. So that, that's why it's so effective with traumatic experiences uh, and trauma and PTSD because it allows uh, for a state of love to be induced, you know. And the idea, again, is to create new forms of, uh, I guess, brain muscle memory, you know, because if you go through something traumatic and it really... Uh, you know, I, I mean, all of us who go through traumatic or heartbreaking things, uh, whether they're emotionally painful or physically painful, they have deep, deep effects on our psyche. They can have deep effects on our physical bodies and on our, our emotional intelligence. And if you go along in life and you're not treating that, uh, the default position in your relationship to your trauma becomes it kind of becomes the lead position. You know what I mean? You let that trauma define you if you're not doing any healing. Um, and this is not to minimize it. I mean, these are incredibly painful things that people can go through. But if you don't start stepping into the process of healing, then it will spiral. It will take over your life and affect every aspect of your life. So by engaging in a healing um method like MDMA therapy, it can snap that cycle and kind of create this, um, this, you know, viewpoint of, um, lack of separation. I mean, that's the idea, you know, this illusion of separation that we create within ourselves that creates distance between, uh, each other on a daily basis, between the people that, that harm us, uh, and so on and so forth that creates a schism rather than looking at it as, hey, we're all in this together and we have to figure it out and heal together. And yeah, yeah that's, that's where it began. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. 